Our Father, it is our prayer, even as we sing in the song, which is essentially a prayer itself, set to music, that you would be the center of our affections and our hearts, the object of all of our desires. And though that is the deepest longing of our heart for those of us who know you, we at the same time recognize that that's not always the case. It's not as it should be. It's not as it will be. Very often we act contrary to that, but it is what we desire. It's what we seek for you to work in us, that Christ would be everything in our all in all. And so, Lord, we ask you to do that in us. And even as we consider this morning the topic of temptation and that we ask that you would teach us of how to walk wisely in this world and to overcome those things that would direct our affections away from you and to deepen in us that loving commitment and trust and that wisdom that um, grows in the path of righteousness and shines brighter more and more as we age and live with you in this world. So to that end, we ask your favor and your grace and your mercy as we open your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. Well, it's good to be back. Uh, Thank you, everyone, who prayed for us while we were gone. We were in North Carolina, as some of you know, uh, and transitioning Ellie uh, into moving in with uh, her grandmother, my mom, and uh, beginning school down there. And so there were a lot of details there, and we saw much of the Lord's mercy, so thank you for those who prayed. But she's there, and uh, we miss her, but uh, she's she's in good hands. And it was uh, always good to go and visit other believers in other parts of the world it's, uh, and to sit under the ministry of other men and to sing and to worship with the saints. Um, but uh, in doing that, we always miss being here, uh, and so it's good to be back. Our hearts are, are, our hearts are here, um, even though we enjoy the break. Well, as you know, before we left, we finished the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, and so we are are done with that. We won't be returning to that anytime soon, but we're going to, and you know that we're eventually going to be making our way to the book of Revelation, and I hope to start that by early fall, and uh, I'm eager to get there. I know uh, many of you are eager to get there as well. But in the meantime, we're going to take this opportunity to look at a variety of topics, some things that people have asked to look at, some things that are just on my mind and my heart. We probably won't get to everything. I made a a long list, surely (laughs) longer than we'll actually uh, be able to fulfill. But uh, nonetheless, we're going to take this time to look at some uh, various topics, and then we'll do a few messages uh, to prepare our way for our look at the the book of Revelation as we consider different topics of eschatology and uh, even the book itself of Revelation. Uh, So this morning, along those lines, we are going to consider the topic of temptation, and I have a very creative title uh, for this morning, which is Some Thoughts on Temptation. And that's essentially what it is, some thoughts on temptation. This, of course, is a wide and a vast topic. Uh, there are many parts of it that we could, uh, uh, that we could look at and many ways that we could uh, approach it. Um, I'm going to be very narrow this morning in the way that we look at it, and, and specifically just looking at one aspect of the temptation to sin, the temptation to sin. Uh, we are well familiar with the reality of temptation as believers, we live with that every day. We live with the reality of sin outside of us, the reality of sin within us. And, and Jesus said that it's inevitable that we should experience temptation. In Luke 17, 1, he says this, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks, that is, uh, I did temptations to sin, should come, but woe to him through whom they come. So it is inevitable as we live in this world that we would be faced with the reality of temptation and temptation to sin. One person said this, temptation exists in the first place because the moral and spiritual world, in the view of the biblical writers, is such that a great battle between good and evil is raging at every moment. For people living in a fallen world, life at every moment is at a transcendent crisis in which a person's allegiance is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan and evil. And so that's the reality of the conditions in which we live. We live in a fallen world, and we live in a world that is groaning under the weight of sin. We live in a world that's under the influence of our adversary, the devil, the tempter. 
We live in a world that wants to entice us away from devotion to God. And as noted, we carry within us the vestiges of sin wherever we go, even into the prayer closet, into our jobs, into our family. Wherever we are, we also are yet longing for our full redemption, which has not yet come. So temptation is a reality. So we're going to look at this just briefly, and again, by, by no means exhaustively. But we're going to look at this just briefly under four specific headings. And the first is this, what temptation is, or what is temptation? What is temptation? Uh, one defines the term this way, the primary idea, or the idea of the, uh, temptation, the primary idea in the biblical term is to tempt uh, in the biblical term, to tempt is to test or to put on trial. That's the key idea. And so the term itself, both in the Old Testament and Hebrew and both in the New Testament in Greek, is, is translated in those two ways. It's, it's translated as to test or trial or to tempt. And the same root idea in each case is to really is to expose, to elicit out of a person either a response that is righteous uh, or a response that is... Sin, that is sinful. Another said this, the root meaning of temptation is is that it tests a person with the person's response determining his or her identity. And so again, while temptation or testing is used in a variety of ways and for a variety of purposes, the focus here will be on the very narrow topic, as I mentioned, of the temptation to sin. And I say that's very narrow because in some ways we are tested by God and the idea of testing is to mature our faith or to prove the reality of faith or to expose sin that needs to be repented of. There's a variety of ways that that's uh, talked about in scripture. Man can tempt God. The term is used in that way, put God to the test. Uh, We see that in the nation of Israel, that they are rebuked for those kind of things. Man tempts one another. There's ways that we, uh, man can be, we read about it in Jude, tempt one another to sin. There's a variety of ways that that idea is used. In terms of temptation to sin, uh, while that is never something that God does and tempts us to sin, James makes that clear, that's always the work of the devil. His intention is always to cause us to fall, to cause us to stray from God's ways. So there's a variety of ways that it's used, but again, we're going to focus on that very narrow topic of temptation to sin. And to do that first, I want to just briefly remind us of what is sin. Sin is, in its most simplest form, or the most simple way to understand it, is any lack of conformity to God's holiness. Any lack of conformity to God's holiness. Anything that does not match up and conform exactly to the holiness and the perfection of God, whether in our thoughts, whether in our desires and affections, and then, of course, actually the things that we do. Anything that does not conform to God's holy character is sin. James puts it simply, sin is lawlessness, and at the heart of the law is to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbors, ourselves. So anything in us in terms of desire or intent or action that is not a perfect expression of love to God and love for our neighbor is sin, is sin. And temptation is a draw to act then in a way that is contrary to the love of God. It's everything outside us and inside us that seeks to draw us away from holiness, wisdom, from God's word to something else. So that's what temptation is, basically, temptation to sin. Secondly, then, how does temptation work? And we'll spend most of our time here. How does temptation work? Well, to consider this, let's go back to the beginning, the very first temptation in Genesis chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, that's where we'll begin. Now, we've looked at this passage before, and again, this isn't going to be exhaustive, but it is just to briefly consider uh, the way that temptation is presented to us at the very beginning of Scripture, at the very beginning of the revelation of God. We're familiar with this passage. I think it is one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And to begin, just look at the first part of verse 1. This is the very beginning of what had was up to this point only idyllic and glorious and very good we enter into a new state here in verse 1 with these words now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the lord god had made and as soon as we come into this word we come in a a very subtle almost imperceptible way uh, into 
a great and tragic circumstance, and that is a circumstance in which everything that God created with order and beauty and purpose is turned upside down on its head. You may not notice that at first, uh, but it is certainly there. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made, and it was this serpent that had made its way to Eve in order to draw her away from her created purpose, her true identity as an image bearer of God. So in the very circumstances of the temptation is a rejection of God's creation. And you say, in what way? It is a reversal of God's created order. We know that God created all things. He created the beast of the field. Then he created man, male and female. And then when he gets more specific about how he created man, he did that with a specific order as well. He created man first to be a head over creation. And then he created Eve to be uh, with him in an intimate relationship and to rule with him but in a gendered order first male and then female and they were both together to rule over the creation that God had made and to subdue it and then we come into this very first words of chapter 3 and all of that's turned upside down we have the creation over which they were to rule coming to the woman who should have been submitted to her husband but wasn't and then you have the husband who should have been shepherding his wife who's not in the picture and at the bottom of all of that is God and so everything's turned upside down it's all topsy-turvy by the very way in which the beast came to her so here we are in trouble already even at the beginning You'd notice first, before even that that situation happens, the environment in which the temptation took place. This is the Garden of Eden. This is paradise on earth. It's coming at a time, this reversal, this subtle rejection of God's created order, in an environment of perfect beauty, harmony, peace, delight, joy, flourishing, everything that is good, everything that is designed for the pleasantness of the soul and for the good of humanity. If you go back to chapter 2, verse 9, God begins the description of this garden when he says this. Well, he describes this garden when he says this. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing or delightful to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they are in an environment that is perfectly suited to delight. So every capacity, every sense, every ability of man to experience any kind of pleasure, purpose, and satisfaction was laid at their feet, and they were designed to imbibe of it and do so in fellowship with God with perfect happiness. That is the environment uh, in which they were made and in which they were placed. That term pleasing is, could also be translated as delight and often is. And it includes the basic idea of describing something that is perceived as good, beautiful, and desirable. It also is used to speak of the inward want of something that is good and that is pleasing and that is satisfying. And placed in this garden, God gave them incredible freedom and incredible joy and incredible opportunity. It says in verse 15 of chapter 2, the Lord God took man, put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And he commanded him saying, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. Everything God did, again, was laid at their disposal for their enjoyment and complete fullness, unhindered in every way except for the command to obey him by not eating from the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. But God's instructions were instructions of blessing. They were instructions to enjoy. Again, nothing was withheld from their pleasure. Materially, they had an abundance and the opportunity to produce more. They had everything that was necessary for their sustenance and for their joy. And they had the opportunity to increase that as they subdued the earth, as they brought it under the control of uh, uh, their ability to bring out and extract from it everything that God enabled it to produce. They had everything that was delightful physically. They had comfort, peace, and joy in their work. He says, I have given you everything, essentially. In verse 129, I've given you every plant, uh, verse chapter 1, yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth, every tree yielding fruit, every beast of the earth. Everything was given to them. Relationally, after the creation of Eve, they had unhindered purity of the intimate covenant relationship in marriage, including even sexual delight in all of 
its ways that were meant to glorify God. They had the opportunity and potential of family and offspring and the joy of reproducing themselves and the happiness that God designed in that as well to multiply and to fill the earth. They had everything good. They had everything good. And it is in that context that it's all reversed. It is in that context that Satan comes to undo and disrupt and bring chaos into God's order. And so he says, Now the serpent then was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he came to the woman to tempt her away. So let's notice first in the pattern of temptation from the tempter. And again, we're going to look at this briefly. But the pattern of temptation from the tempter. And notice that every one of these temptations is designed, not in fact designed, but it does, address the mind and address her thinking, address her attitude, address her perceptions. Satan can no more make a person, cannot make a person sin. No one can make us sin. He's, he's not there forcing their hand. He's not there in any way holding them down to do something wicked. He's merely working to affect them inwardly, to affect their mind, to affect their thinking. Sin always rises from within ourselves. All Satan does is provide the influence and the opportunity. So how does he do that? Well, notice what he says first. He causes doubt and confusion about the character of God. He says to her, to the woman, indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And he right at the very beginning, without any introduction, without any leading into it, reframes the entire situation of their existence. He reframes their entire perception of their environment, their entire perception of God is all in those simple words, has God said... You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. How did he do it? Well, just notice a few things. What God had given for abundance, for freedom, and for joy, and for delight in God's command, where he placed the specific emphasis on the the fullness of their opportunity to enjoy everything he made, Satan places the negative not, that you shall not eat. Eat at the beginning of the statement, reversing the very tone of God's command, the very intent of the command. He removes the emphasis of freely. God said, you shall freely eat. eat." He takes that out and he then attacks the goodness of God in his liberality and his generosity towards them. He omits the description of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to remove any sense of warning or contemplation of her actions. And so in that one statement, he utterly transforms the entire situation in her mind. Everything is turned upside down. Again, the question itself reframes the situation that suggests as well something sinister in God's motivation. Rather than the garden being a gift from God as an expression of his goodness, he now implants immediately into the mind of Eve that the situation in which she lives from God and by his design is one of deprivation, is one of withholding, is one of lack of goodness. One said this, by this one statement of the snake, God has moved from beneficent provider to cruel oppressor. He changes her mind about God. And I would simply ask you this, is there any area in which you're struggling with trusting God's goodness? Is there any circumstance or particular thing, even a good thing, where you see God is lacking provision for you, where you see as his promises as weak or untrustworthy? These things can come to us in a variety of ways. It's how temptation works. It affects our mind and our thinking about God. Note, secondly, that he then denies what God had revealed to them as his holy will. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat from it or touch it or you shall die. And so the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. You surely will not die. Having cast the shadow of doubt about God's character, he now, with subtlety, denies the truthfulness of God's word. He's essentially laying before them a new choice, a new choice. 
Will they follow God who is doubtful in his character and instructions? Or will they follow this new opportunity that is laid before them? Will they believe God who has tones of oppression in all that he has done? Or will you believe me is working towards your freedom, towards your joy, towards your emancipation, towards your good? You have a choice. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to follow? And he does that by simply denying God's word. Bold face, explicitly, simply saying, yes, God said that. It is not true. It is not true. It is not a trustworthy statement. And again, I would ask, is there any part of God's word that you struggle with because it confronts you with what you want? Is there any part of God's word that seems to you doubtful because it contradicts what you hear incessantly through media, through your culture, maybe even through family upbringing or some other experience or influence in your life? Does the teaching of the word of God about reality, about gender, about humanity, about marriage, about truth in any way, shape, or form seem to you strange and odd and the culture's explanations seem much more reasonable? Is there any way in which internally that you are being shaped in your morality and understanding of reality by some other source than scripture? If so, then you are under this temptation. Indeed, as we'll consider later, you have entered into it. Is there any part in your mind where Scripture seems insufficient or inadequate to address your deepest needs and you are caused to look somewhere else? If so, I would say that is the same kind of temptation. Note thirdly then that he then offers his own answer, deception, his own cunning towards sin, and that's in verse 5. He says, For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Having implanted a question of God's doubt about God's provision, having denied God's warning, having defied God's order of creation, he now supplants his own life to bring in the final, to to complete the circle of reshaping her perception of her reality, her perception of everything, her perception of herself, her perception of God, her perception of her surroundings, and her own happiness. Satan has now made disobedience to God the most attractive and reasonable option for self-fulfillment, for, self, for happiness. He changed, again, the perspective on everything. And now, the, in this condition, the tree, which was forbidden, now is beautiful. It now has its own appeal. Previously, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was forbidden by God, was in every way easily avoided, even ignored, maybe even forgotten about. There was no draw to do what God had forbidden them to do. But now, it became the very center of attention. Its appeal shined with a new luster and a new beauty. Now, everything that was good for her was focused on this tree. Isn't that how temptation works sometimes? Everything else fades into the background and this one sin, this one lust becomes the very center of attention. Indeed, sometimes when there's heavy temptation, it's the only thing you can think about or focus on. It's the only thing that you can imagine would bring joy and happiness and that's coming under temptation. That's entering into temptation. And that's exactly what he did. A tree that was previously ignored by her and of, uh, inconse- it was inconsequential now becomes the very center of her universe, the very center of all the affections of her thoughts and of her heart. The desire for wisdom and knowledge is good, but she wanted it on her own terms apart from revelation. She did not seek God's help. She did not refer to God's word. She did not counsel with her husband. She was acting and feeling and in a place of complete autonomy, independence. And that is, of course, at the very heart of sin. Notice as well, then, the pattern of the temptation in the tempted in her herself. And this becomes exposed in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband and with her and he ate as well. Now just observe right at the beginning, the first mistake 
is that she did not immediately flee or confront the serpent in his saying something different than what she knew God had said, but she listened. This is very similar. We won't go there, but in James chapter one, you're familiar with where each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. There's a, that's fishing hunting language. Uh, there's an imagery even of like a, uh, if you've been fishing, there's a lure and you and of a fish swimming around the lure and the lure considering, considering, and then they strike. And when they strike, and that is a picture of our conceiving sin, committing sin, and then you're hooked. And as Proverbs says, you're led to slaughter. And so that's the idea here. She didn't avoid it. She didn't run away. She kept considering. She kept listening. She put herself around it. And she relied on her own reasoning, rejecting the revelation of God. Now this tree that was forbidden becomes the object of her desire and she acts out on her desire and she takes from the tree and she eats and she gives to her husband. Notice the language of desire. It was delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. It was not reprehensible. It was not hated. It was not a source of danger. Again, it was within her affections, within her reasoning, within her sense, something that was good. Something that was good. Satan, in this temptation, has drawn her away from reliance on God, and she has followed him where he has drawn, and now she has new desires in contradiction to the ones she had before. Uh, One said this, the serpent intends to place before her the possibility of being more than she and more than God intended her to be. Whenever one makes his own will crucial and God's revealed will irrelevant, Whenever autonomy displaces submission and obedience in a person, that finite individual attempts to rise above the limitations imposed on him by his creator. Uh, In short, that is simply to say, whenever we act and think and feel and live independently from God and in submission to him. That's what she did, that's what she felt, and that's what led to her taking of the fruit and sinning and disobeying God. And I again would ask you on this, is there any particular sin that is seducing you to take matters in your own hands rather than to trust God? Is there any temptation that you feel even now in your heart at some aspect of your life that you are considering that you know to be sin, that you know to be a compromise, that you know to be something that is disobedient to God's word, but you can't get it out of your mind and you keep thinking about it and you more and more are considering doing it? That's what happened to Eve. Again, that's how temptation works. Notice that she did not inwardly fight the seduction to sin. She did not inwardly fight it, but gave in to it. An interesting note here, just to emphasize this, that word that's translated delight in verse 6 is the same word that was used in chapter 2, verse 9, about pleasing to the sight. It was a delight But it was a wrong delight, the true delight, which was so much more full and so much more abundant and so much more full of goodness and blessing, was now no longer seen to be such, but evil, disobedience took in the place. It was a new delight had replaced the delight that God had created us for. So it's a new delight. And she was fully embracing it. She was fully giving in to it. Again, that's how temptation works. All of her past experiences up to this point, all of the pleasures that she had known up to this point, all of the opportunities and the fruitfulness of her activity that she had known up to this point had all gone away and faded into the background. Those were all unimportant and unreal. And again, that's, that's how it works. Now, we notice here that the primary agent of this temptation is Satan. He is the primary agent of this temptation, and he is always, in that sense, in the sense of uh, the ultimate source uh, of the the prompting toward evil, uh, it does come from Satan. He's not the source of all temptation. Again, we have temptation that comes from within inside of us in in a variety of ways, but ultimately it falls under his design even as it did here in the garden. And God allowed that to happen. And that's the idea of testing comes out there. So you see both sides of it. God is testing, will you prove to be obedient? Satan is tempting away from that obedience to God towards sin. The test was failed in that sense. And Satan is always working to that same end. 
He is, as you're well familiar, called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4.4 and the prince of the power of the air. And his strategy in the garden has not changed and our susceptibility and vulnerabilities have not only not changed, but they've grown worse because now we come into this world with an inner disposition, with an inner default towards sin. In sin, my mother conceived me. We, we come into this world already with a propensity to do what, evil, what is evil, which Eve at this point did not have, nor Adam. But it is something that we have inherited from them. So the, the strategy of Satan and the schemes of Satan have only increased in their power because they are now attended with a reality inside of us that gives them strength and power, namely a love for what is disobedient, a love for sin. And so Satan is always, even now, since that point, seeking to create an environment in which self-seeking pleasure seems more real than God and the blessedness and the pleasures which are found in him. And he's very skilled. He's very skilled not only in terms of influence in the world, but he's very skilled in terms of our own lives. Listen to how one old author put this. This I don't have up there. Um, I'll just have to read it to you. Speaking of Satan, it says this. He searches out where... And when the believer is most vulnerable, he adjusts himself accordingly to present his temptation then in this and then in that manner. He knows the constitution of the body and as well as its vulnerability. He knows the sin most likely to be committed and he knows in what circumstances we must at all times be, be most likely to do so. Along with this, he interjects thoughts and mental images in our imaginations whereby he endeavors to make us think about such thoughts stimulating sinful desires and reflections. So he's very skilled at his work. He knew exactly what circumstance to meet Eve and not Adam. He knew exactly what weakness would come within her own thinking and her own constitution. And he knew exactly how to phrase things in such a way that what is evil would seem like it was good. And he comes in the same way. And we do not all have the same weaknesses, but we all have weaknesses and we can be sure that he is well aware of each of them. And that's how he and is very skilled in his temptation. And so these come in a variety of ways. Again, he tempts us through false teaching. We see many that are led astray, as we read again in Jude. Those who are led astray, who are enslaved to their own lust, and so they bring that depravity into the church, and they lead others away to follow after their own lust, what is wrong and what is evil, and they do that, in that case, even in the name of Christ. There's ways he tries to tempt disobedience to Christ through fear of persecution. He was warning the Hebrews about that, that they were afraid of what it would cost them, and they were some afraid of turning away because of the persecution that had risen against them. There's sometimes he tempts through the fear of man, where we fear more man's opinion and man's approval and man's power than we do that of God. He appeals to illicit desires, pride, and materialism. We see that in a variety of ways. It comes through the whole schema of this world, which is designed to draw us away into itself and away from God to worship the creator rather, or the creature rather than the creator. There's a variety of ways. And, and scripture, again, makes this clear. He says our battle is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers and the wicked forces of evilness in the heavenly places and, and so on. So he's active, he's there, and these temptations come in a variety of ways. It can even come, as noted, through teachers of righteousness. We already mentioned that, those who appear as angels of light. It can come sometimes through well-intended and misguided but immature friends, such as Peter with J uh, Jesus. When Jesus had to rebuke him and say, get behind me, Satan, Peter was a mouthpiece at that point to tempt Jesus to not follow the path that God had designed for him as the Savior of the world. Jesus recognized it and turned away turned away and rebuked Peter for it, just as a footnote. That's why it's important that we surround ourselves with godly friends and spiritual fellowship, biblical fellowship. So the primary battle with temptation, however, is internal. The primary battle with temptation is internal. It's really a matter of our heart's desires. And this has been often said that the only power Satan has is whatever sin remains in our lives and in our hearts. Uh, one of the most uh, beautiful statements about the sinlessness of Christ is where Jesus said, the, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. He has no power over me because there was no sin in Jesus. So Satan was utterly uh, impotent against the person of Christ because Christ had no sin. 
And inasmuch as sin has a reign and the upper hand in our own affections, to that degree, Satan has a power within us, a foothold. But to whatever degree we are putting to death the deeds of the flesh and putting to death sin, then his power is weakened within us. It's that, it's that simple. Because the primary battle, again, is internal. That's how it was with Eve. That's how it always is. It's a matter of our heart's desires. So in the end, all temptation, whether it is successful or resisted, boils down to this, what we love. It boils down to what we love, what we desire, to what we believe, what we believe is good. And in that sense, then we could say that temptation finds its greatest hold uh, in us and our greatest acceptability to temptation comes through a lack of self-control, a lack of self-control, a lack of being in command by the power of the Holy Spirit with our inner lives. Listen to how one author put it. More often, we use the term temptation to indicate seduction to sin. And here it is, Satan, who figures prominently, enticing us away from God, from faith in him, from his fellowship and standards, and from his direction for our lives, and seducing us into sin, which grieves and dishonors God, while Satan may seek to confuse us at the intellectual level with heresy and half-truths and ideological distortions, he also, and often more fatally, seeks to manipulate us, and here it is, at a more hidden levels of our being, the levels of desire, impulse, instinct, prejudice, and fear. That's where he has his power of what goes on in the deepest part of our hearts in terms of our desire, our natural impulses, our natural instinct, our natural prejudices, and our natural fears. And so again, in this sense then, the power of temptation is connected to our self-control, our yieldedness to the will of God, the mastery that we have by the power of the Spirit over our own inner lives. And again, this is what he appeals to both in general and in particulars. In particulars. As a matter of fact, let me just, I'm not gonna spend much time there, but let me just mention, that was exactly the issue that Jesus rebuked the spiritual leaders for with all of their scruples about obedience to the minutia of the law, all of their professed faith and desiring to glorify God. He says this about them, that they lack self-control. He says, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Full of robbery and self-indulgence. Now that idea of self-indulgence uh, there uh, is the idea of self-control. It's the idea of self-control. You, you have outwardly, but inwardly, Satan is able to manipulate you and Satan is able to keep you in your blindness because inside you lack self-control and spiritual reality. And that can happen even in, within believers. In 1 Corinthians 7, just one more, that's actually the only, well, 1 Corinthians 7 he says this, related to marriage. He says, speaking of the intimate relationship within marriage, he says, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There the temptation comes in direct connection to the lack of self-control. Of false teachers this is the issue. It says they are gonna, men are going to be or of the, the character of uh, ungodliness in the end age. And here he's speaking of the church. He says people will be unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control. And so where there's a lack of self-control, where there's a lack of inward self-discipline, where there's a lack of inward submission to the word of God, then temptation is going to have a certain power over us. It's going to have, Satan is going to have a certain inroads into our lives, into our thinking. And again, then, it comes as a matter of what we love. That's really the issue. It really is the issue. And it's only then Satan is addressed, or temptation is addressed, when we deal with it at that level. We don't have time to get there, but I'm, I just do at least want to mention we don't overcome then temptation by asceticism, by harsh treatment of the body. Law does not sanctify. 
Christ sanctifies. Love for the Christ sanctifies. The gospel sanctifies. We need to put rules in our life for sure, but we don't rely on those rules to conform us to the image of Christ. It's a love of Christ. So Paul says that. He says, as talking about the harsh things that people do in treatment of the body, he says, but these are of no value. They're of no benefit against the flesh or fleshly desires. And then he says, set your mind on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he goes on. Consider the members of your body as dead to immorality, impurity, and so forth. It is by focusing on Christ. That is, it is an issue of the heart. You're probably thinking it. We're not going to go there just for... Time's sake, but 1 John chapter 2, 15, he says, the mark of being in Christ, the born again, is do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For all that is in the world, and by world, he means here, that world in as much as it's under the influence of the adversary. He says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And so again, are you tempted in any way towards loving the world more than you love the church, more than you love Christ, more than you love truth? Well, all that being said, let's, let's uh, go here. How is temptation overcome? How is temptation overcome? Again, obviously, there's a lot more that could be said, but I want to get here. How is temptation overcome? Well, first, temptation is overcome in the first uh, one of the first lines of defense, one of the first attacks that we have against temptation is in being near in fellowship with the Lord, which is primarily expressed in prayer, in prayer, to pray and to watch. Jesus said this to his disciples, as you remember in the garden when he was about to be betrayed, he said, watch and pray, watch and pray that you not fall into temptation, watch and pray. John Owen said this, that great divine of old. He said, he that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. He that would be little in temptation, let him be much in prayer. There's a direct correlation to sincere, godly prayer and the power or the lack of it of temptation in our lives. So prayer is one of the first battles against temptation. Now before I say that, there are two important caveats that I would mention and before I just say a few more things about that. One is this. Uh, when we say we pray, it's not saying pray as if it's some kind of magic formula. You add the, you know, this ingredient of prayer and then there's no temptation. Uh, we must be careful of our hearts even when we go to pray. We must be careful of our desires even when we go to pray. And that is in this way. First, we must pray when we do against the temptation with a sincere desire to actually turn from that sin. We must have an honest hatred of it. We can't go to prayer and ask God for forgiveness and help while we seek nourishing, nourishing a love for that sin, whatever iniquity it is. So we must examine our heart even as we come before the Lord and make sure that we're not secretly loving the thing that we're praying against and know that we'll fall into again. Secondly, a caveat, there is with the sincerity then of confession and with the sincerity of prayer an honest determination to fight against the sin. So to pray against a sin and to pray about a sin and to pray a, a prayer of confession also means that attendant with that, there is the commitment of the will to fight against the very sin that we're praying about. We can't just get up and think that our confession was real and now all that's done. We get up and if the confession was real, we determine and make plans to fight against that sin. We struggle against it. We fight against it. We strive against it. So we pray, but we pray with sincerity of heart with a sincere hatred of that sin and a sincere desire to fight against it. That said, what are some of the things we should pray for? Well, again, I'm just going to go through these quickly. Well, the, one of the key texts there, of course, would be in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We pray and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Uh, it has an article there, so therefore it's usually considered the evil one. I would lean in that direction. It could be either way. And they would all really be included in, a, in an ultimate sense. But do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil or deliver us from the evil one. We ask God to keep us from entering into temptation. 
Now, temptation itself is not sin. We're not saying, God, keep me from any temptation. That's impossible. Jesus has already made that clear. There's many stumbling blocks in the world. It's inevitable that we would come across these stumbling blocks. It's inevitable that we would come across things that would entice us to sin. We're not saying, or he's not saying, pray that I would never be tempted again with anything in the world. I would just somehow float through this world on angelic wings and never even have the desire. We're not, he's not praying for that. He's not saying to pray for that. What he's saying here about do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil is essentially this. Do not lead us or do not let us go into a place where that temptation has a power within us, where it has some hold on our affections and on our heart. Again, let me turn to John Owen. He said this, when we suffer a temptation to enter into us, then we enter into temptation. Whilst it knocks at the door, we are at liberty. But when any temptation comes in and parlays with the heart, reasons with the mind, and entices and allures the affection, be it for a long or a short time, do it thus insensibly or imperceptibly, or do the soul take notice of it, we enter into temptation. In other words, the temptation, as long as it's presented to us as an opportunity that doesn't match with the desire of our heart and the, and the actions of our will, remains merely a test. But when it enters into us and it begins to get a hold of our affections, our thoughts, our reasonings, our desires, then we have entered into temptation. And so the prayer is, Lord, do not let sin have a foothold within me. Do not lead me. Do not let me in any way move within my heart and in my life into a place where sin would have an advantage within me. Keep me from it. Keep me from evil. We could pray as well again. Moving on. We pray as well then that as we pray that we would not enter into temptation, we can pray that God would show us the way of escape in that temptation. We're familiar with the words, 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And what does he say? You know the verse, God is faithful and not, will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we are able. That is not to say that we all inwardly have our own resources of strength to avoid it. It is to say that in the power of the Holy Spirit, by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, by the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit, God will always provide for us uh, the opportunity to rely on that inward power, to rely on the word that he's revealed and the Spirit's uh, implying that word to our heart in a way that we can avoid that temptation. As a matter of fact, before he said that, he said, look at the example. Look at the example of Israel. Look at the example of how they fell into sin and the consequences came from it. They never turned to God. They gave in to, they entered into the temptation. He's saying, no, you are going to be tested in that way, but you don't need to enter into the temptation because God has provided a way for you to escape it by relying on him, essentially. Uh, we can pray that God would strengthen us in the inner man against that temptation. We can pray that God would strengthen us in the inner man against that temptation. Paul prays uh, to the Ephesians, for the Ephesians, a prayer that we model for the church and for ourselves. He says this, he prays that God would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. He's not talking about Marvel superhero power, obviously. What is the power that he's talking about? Well, it's gonna be what he goes into in the next section, that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of your calling with which you have been called. Essentially, this power is the power to live a righteous life, the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh, the power to set your mind on the things above. It is the power to live in Christ. It is the power to have discernment of spiritual truth. It is the power to live righteously. And it's through the spirit in the inner man. And it comes with the purity of life where Christ dwells in our heart through faith and we grasp the fullness and an ever-growing sense of the love of God in Christ Jesus by which we're filled up to the fullness of God. It means that we pray knowing that Christ himself prays for us. Christ is even at this very moment for believers praying for them. Uh, we get a picture of this during his earthly life when he said this in verse 15. Remember, this is in the context of his prayer to the Father. It's a high priestly prayer. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We pray that God would keep us from the evil one and we pray knowing that Christ himself is praying that for us and he desires that for us. And so we have a certain confidence that as we pray, we're praying according to his will and that he hears us and then we can rest and have inner strength and encouragement to fight against whatever temptations might be assailing our soul.
Secondly, how do we fight temptation? By reading, studying, and meditating on Scripture. It's by knowing the Word of God and having it in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, Just a couple of uh, passages here. Psalm 119, uh, 105. Your Word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. How do we avoid temptation? How do we avoid succumbing to the darkness when we have the word of God in us rightly understood and rightly applied that it gives us discernment over those things that are a threat to our soul and would tempt us away from it? He says later or earlier in Psalm 119, how does a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. We well remember Jesus and his refutation of Satan's temptations, the three times repeated word what? It is written. It is written. Where Israel failed to trust God's revealed word, Jesus did not fail, quoting each time out of Deuteronomy, showing that where they are the son that was disobedient, he is the perfect son, ultimately the son from heaven and flesh who was obedient to the will of God. It is written. It is written. Satan came with deceptive twists And accusations, Jesus, by his complete reliance on the word of God, even though he was the living word, even though he was the one who gave that word, is the one who also perfectly conformed to that word and refuted the lies of Satan and overcame the temptation. Where else? How else do we fight temptation? We fight it through prayer. We fight it through reading and knowing and having God's word in our mind, regularly exposing ourselves to it. We also do it by disciplining ourselves to avoid areas of weakness. Disciplining ourselves to avoid areas of weakness. We're familiar with Jesus' words in the the context of sexual lust, but the principle applies all all over. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If your right eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. In other words, take whatever means you need to to avoid sin. But in order to do that, we have to know ourselves. We have to know ourselves. And again, as already noted, we have to know ourselves because our adversary knows us as well, and where we're weak. Uh, Again, one author said this, man can also tempt himself toward evil when he carelessly brings himself into circumstances which could have been avoided, and of which we know that they have generally caused us to sin. When we yield to minor sins, when we entertain idle thoughts, when we postpone the performance of a specific duty, and when we debate about a sin as to whether or not we are permitted to do this, or whether such and such is indeed a great sin. Uh, if we are not careful, if we entertain idle thoughts, if we're not diligent in the task that God has given us to do, if we get into the, such silly debates about uh, is this really a bad sin or is this a big sin or is this a little sin or how close can I get to sin, already we have failed at that point. It, it, Satan has already gotten a hold through the temptation. And so we must know ourselves and we must take actions to avoid those things which would cause us to sin, those things that are avoidable. Uh, Another, well, again, Owen said this on that same idea. Let him that would not enter into temptation labor to know his own heart, to be acquainted with his own spirit, his natural frame and temper, his lust and corruptions, his natural sinful and spiritual weakness, that finding where his weakness lies, he may be careful to keep at a distance from all occasions of sin. Again, wisdom that comes through the, the, uh, through the church, through the corridors of time. It's biblical wisdom that we avoid sin, we avoid those things, and that we know our areas of weakness in that, in that battle. And we have to ask God to help us know our hearts. And we say, search me, O God, see if there be any hurtful way in me. See if there be any hurtful way in it. Reveal it to me. Lord, show me where my weaknesses lie. Show me where I am susceptible. That's part of our prayer too. Show me where I tend towards sin. Show me the things going on in my heart that keep me struggling with the same sin over and over and over again. And we appeal to God to help us to know ourselves so that we can move out of that situation. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Notice what he says, so easily entangles us. Solomon said, watch over our heart with all diligence. Paul said, do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. To the Corinthians, he says, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. One said this, Spurgeon, the severest struggle of a true Christian are usually unknown to anybody himself. Not in the family do we meet with the most subtle temptations, but in the closet. 
Not in the shop so much as in the recesses of our own spirit do we wrestle with principalities and powers. For these dread duels, it is written, is the best sword and shield. Scripture to convince another man is good, but Scripture is most required to console, defend, and sanctify our own soul. And so it's as we wrestle with the word of God within our own heart and with our own desires and we, we seek to defeat sin. Lastly, we meditate on Christ. We meditate on Christ. Again, I already mentioned that with Paul. He takes us there. It's not just through more harsh treatment or more law, but as we have our hearts filled with Christ. Uh, Wilhelm Sabrackle, an old uh, theologian, said this, Such have a perfect heart, which ones for nothing else but continual union and fellowship with God. In other words, a perfect heart wants continually to be in fellowship with God. A perfect heart, a right heart, a complete heart, a full heart, an obedient heart. The world and all that appears to be attractive and delightful in the world must be banished from the heart and the Lord alone must be all sufficient to us and must be the object of our joy, our delight, love and fear. If we do not proceed in this from the heart in all our doing, no progress will be made. We shall be vulnerable to temptations and the most insignificant occasion will cause us to fall. We'll fall easily, we'll fall repeatedly, we'll fall over and over again in the same area inasmuch as Christ is not the fullness of the delight of our heart. And so that's what we pray for and that's what we seek. That we keep our minds set on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The author of Hebrews says, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Let me just mention lastly before we come into the table. How do we recover from failure? With all that said, the reality is is that you'll still fall to temptation at times. You'll still wrestle. You'll still battle. God will continually reveal areas of weakness to your heart. He will continually reveal those areas which are susceptible. Sometimes we all have besetting sins that beguile us, that betwixt us, that cause us so much frustration that, that we do repeatedly, that we pray against, and yet we fall again and again. And God sometimes leaves us to it in order to test us, in order to teach us, in order to humble us, in order to remind us of his grace and cause us to walk by faith. He has a variety of reasons why he does that. Sometimes he does. But how do we recover from it? How do we battle with it? How do we fight? How do we grow in our ability to overcome whatever area we're being tempted in? Well, let me just simply put it this way. We look to him who never failed. We look to him who was tempted in all things as we are. And yet, can you finish it? Was without sin. He was without sin. When we keep our eyes on Christ, who not only was he without sin, but being without sin, he was so, so that he could come to our aid and he could be to us a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. He's sympathetic. If you know Christ and if you are in Christ, then when you sin, God is not standing there pointing a finger. He's standing there as a compassionate savior ready to help you if you lay hold of his help. He's not standing there as a judge as he does over the world for their rebellion. He's standing there as a loving father and a compassionate high priest who invites you to come once again to receive of his grace, to learn wisdom. He invites you with mercy. He invites you with compassion. Christian, if you could understand, and if I could understand, and this is part of what Paul prayed for, how deeply God actually loves you in Christ how much he is for you, how much he wants you to overcome that sin, how much he is patient with you, how he is long-suffering towards you, how he is compassionate towards you. Sometimes we don't come to him when we sin and when we fail because we picture him as a judge, we picture ourselves as unworthy, and of course you're unworthy. You're absolutely unworthy. But that's the point. We stand in the worthiness of Christ, and he invites us to do so. And so we keep our eyes on Christ. It says in the book of Hebrews as well that he is the one who made propitiation for our sins. Your sins are already atoned for. There's not more sin to be atoned for. There's sin that needs to be repented of. There's sin that breaks and humbles our heart. There's sin that frustrates us, but it's a sin that's paid for in which there is no condemnation. And so he invites us to come. He invites us to come. And we come to him whom it says in Hebrews 9 is in, has appeared and entered into heaven for us and appears in the presence of God for us. And so we sing that song, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. So we battle temptation, beloved, in the grace of God. We battle temptation in the love of Christ. 
We battle temptation out of gratitude for the gospel. We battle temptation because we don't want to sin against the one who has shown us such mercy and kindness and given us such hope and promise. That's how we battle against temptation. Um, if you have a watch, you might notice that I went up to our time. So um, though we wouldn't normally want to do this, we will push our, so we don't rush through it, our uh, communion to next week. So we will practice communion next week. And I apologize for that. But let me pray and offer to us uh, a benediction. Our Father, thank you for your word, which gives us both warning, does not in any way sugarcoat the reality of sin, which humbles us by reminding us of the dangers of sin, the consequences of sin, by reminding us, Lord, of our own responsibility and the power of the Holy Spirit to be diligent, to fight, to not give up. But Lord, with all of that, we especially thank you that we are reminded that as we struggle, as we fight against sin, as we learn and seek to hate it more, that we don't deserve, do so to earn or to deserve your love. We do so because we have experienced it. And because we say with Paul that the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That we are motivated because we want to honor our Savior who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, who will receive all glory and honor and praise from all that he has made and all that you have redeemed uh, for all of eternity. And we want to live in consistency with what we have been called to, with the calling with which we have been called, with the hope to which we strive and rest in, and to our Savior who calls us to himself and will ultimately call us home. So help us, O Lord, in these things. Give us wisdom, but help us not to lose heart as well. We thank you for grace. And if there's any here who don't know this struggle, who don't know it, who, who aren't struggling with righteousness, who aren't dealing daily with the reality of sin within their heart, who aren't longing and striving for holiness, who, who that sounds like a strange thing, who, who don't know what it means to worship at the feet of Jesus, to if offer you tears because of failure, because of us disappointing the, or uh, not uh, honoring the one that we love, if they are strangers to that kind of repentance, then I pray that you would show that to them and, and bring them to a true and an honest faith in Christ and a true and honest reliance on you and your grace. Thank you, God. Thank, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. And in lieu of our song,